you're visiting with us this morning, we do have a meal over in the Fellowship Hall after our time of uh, teaching, and it's usually kind of a light lunch, and so you're more than welcome to head over there with us and just enjoy the fellowship that we have with one another. I just want to share one thing this morning before we start. This is our second message in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, and um, last week we covered up to around 6, 7, 8, something like that, and we'll pick up where we left off with a little review. Um, In our church, we teach through books of the Bible. We teach through books of the Bible in a verse-by-verse expository fashion, and so sometimes, to be honest, we get into sections portions of scripture uh, that frankly uh, I'd feel much more comfortable just skipping over (laughs) Uh, or not addressing at all for that matter uh, because sometimes this subject matter can be a little uncomfortable. So last week we dealt with some sensitive issues regarding immorality in the church in Corinth and I gave you a warning at the beginning it's kind of a PG message so be aware of that. I try to be as sensitive as I could with that subject matter, and I'll continue to do so this morning. Uh, Next week begins a break for our Sunday school teachers for the month of July. They're going to take off, and um, they're diligently down there every week, and so we like to give them a month off in the summer. And so our children will be up here with us uh, for the month of July. So parents, just so you know, I'm going to take a break from 1 Corinthians just for a couple weeks. And uh, we're going to be covering a little series on the master's plan for the, for the family. And uh, haven't put it all together yet, but it's going to deal with things like marriage and parenting in a biblical manner. And so I pray that that will not only speak to you as parents but also um, and couples, but also to your children. And so we'll try to make it as applicable as possible. But this morning we find ourselves back in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. And so I want to read uh, the, the chapter for us. It's just 13 verses so we understand the context in which we are about to study. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 5 verse 1, It is actually reported that there's sexual immorality among you, and of the kind that is not tolerated even among the pagans. For a man has his father's wife, and you... Are arrogant. Ought you rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. For though absent in the body, I am present in spirit, Paul says, and as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven, that you may be a new lump, as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, And evil, but with unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. Not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world, or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters, since then you would need to go out of the world. But now I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother or sister, for that matter. If he or she is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an adulterer or idolater, 
reviler, drunkard, or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. But what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. You can see why I'd rather just avoid this whole text of Scripture. It's a heavy text of Scripture. It deals with a lot of sorted things. But we're getting our, making our way through it. Uh, I read an illustration of a, a missionary, David Brainerd, and he lived to about the age of 30. He ministered to the American Indians, and he wrote this in his journals. I never got away from Jesus and him crucified, and I found that when my people were gripped by this great evangelical doctrine of Christ and him crucified, I had no need to give them instructions about morality. I found that one followed as the sure and inevitable fruit of the other. He also says in another place, he says, I find my Indians, the ones who he's ministering to, begin to put on the garments of holiness and their common life begins to be sanctified, even in small matters, when they are possessed by the doctrine of Christ and him crucified. What is this missionary saying? He's saying that when a Christian realizes who Christ is, first of all, and secondly, what Christ has done for you, it tends to have a dramatic effect on our lives. Not only in salvation, but also in the way we live, in our holiness. When we celebrate the cross or the death of Christ, it reminds us of what Christ did for us. It reminds us to focus on Christ. And it reminds us that he's called us to live a holy life. Well, the Corinthian church lost that imagery of Christ. Now remember, Paul was their founding pastor. Paul spent 18 months with them. He poured himself into them. And then Apollos came and ministered to them. And he got word, apparently, that there was sexual immorality in the church, not outside the church, in the church. Those who are naming the name of Christ. If you concentrate on Christ paying for your sin, you're more likely not to go out and just sin. (laughs) You're more likely to try to keep your sins in check. Um, The preoccupation with Christ and the cross itself is is a deterrent. It helps us live holy lives. And that's why Paul wrote even back in in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, for I'm determined what? Not to know anything among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. That's how important it is. And so Paul went into this immoral city preaching Christ and him crucified, and many people got saved enough to start a church. But when he left, apparently they lost their focus. They apparently weren't focusing on Christ. And so therefore, immorality filled the church. That focus changed. And that's why it's so important as a church that we stay focused on what Christ has called us to, what God has done for us. That's why we celebrate communion. 
once a month and we focus, we, we have an inward focus, we focus on ourselves, we examine ourselves at that time, but we also focus on the cross and we focus on Christ. Well, the Corinthian church apparently had lost their concentration on Christ and they began to focus on not Christ, but the, te- the people who were teaching them about Christ. And we saw where they said, well, I'm of Apollos, I'm of Paul, I'm of Cephas, I'm of Christ. They were following human leaders. And they were also glorifying not only their human leaders, but they were glorifying themselves. They were very prideful. In verse 2, we saw where he said, you're arrogant. They had a pride problem. Pride and spirituality, beloved, do not go together. They had turned the focus on themselves. And as a result, immorality had come to exist. And so Paul has to write this letter to them to deal with the consequences, really, of their sin, their immorality. Now, we discussed the first five or six verses last week, and we saw where this particular immoral situation um, is really, unfortunately, no different than the society we live in today. There's a lot of churches that accept and that put up with immorality within their church. I remember hearing about a, a big, huge church in Southern California. If I mentioned his name, you would know who he'd been on the air for years on TV. And it's kind of a transition in the church, change of leadership. And they found out that over half, almost three-quarters of their choir, glorious choir, were involved somehow in homosexuality. And when the new worship leader came in and said, okay, we're going to make a statement about this, and most of them left. They couldn't handle it. But my question is, how did it get that far? I mean, this isn't a small little church with, okay, we just got to have some people up here. I mean, this was a huge, several hundred people choir. And then you find out that people weren't even willing to be corrected. They ended up leaving. See, immorality is not a foreigner to the church of Christ. And that's why we have to be vigilant to be on the watch, to be on the lookout. And that's what we're going to talk a little bit about today. But we live in a, I guess you would say, a sexually perversive perverse society, um, and they've gone overboard on the subject of sex. They've gone so much overboard that it, you're almost numb to it anymore. You see it all around you. Uh, and we've perverted, really, the very basic thing that God has designed for our happiness, enjoyment, and procreation. And the sinful culture has perverted it, twisted it, and made it completely out of shape from what God's original design was. I mean, the, the Bible is pretty clear about God's purpose for our bodies. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6, just a page over there, verse 13, it says, The body is not for immorality, but is for the Lord. Why were you giving your body? You were giving your body because it was designed to be used by God, to be blessed by God, to serve God to be honored. 
And yet what happens today in our society, the body is corrupted, it's pushed, it's distorted, it's cause for perversion. And that's not anything new. Satan has always done that. He's done that with music. He's done that with so many different things, the arts. But he's really worked hard in this area, I would say. And I would say it's not just on the liberal side of when people look at this and the sexual revolution, but I think Satan has also perverted it on the conservative side. And that started years ago. There's a quote from the famous early uh, uh, father, Jerome, and he went as far as to say this. He had a warped view of, of his body and sexuality. He says, any bodily contact, contact of any kind is evil. I mean, any? What's he talking about? Well, he goes on and he says, listen to this. Should your little nephew hang on your neck, pay no heed. Don't return it. Should your father fall on the threshold, trample him under your foot and go your way. Just don't pick him up. With dry eyes, fly to the cross. In such cases, cruelty is the only true affection. That's warped. I mean, that's somebody that says, I don't want to have anything to do with sexuality. I don't want to have anything to do with the body. So they make it evil. And that's not what the Bible says. Some monks regarded a sin to bathe at all because they'd never want to see themselves nude or naked. So they just never bathe. That, I could never be a monk. That would, ugh. <laughs> not going not gonna to happen. But Satan is in the, in the business of taking something that's very normal, very good, very wholesome, very beautiful, the human body, and absolutely perverting it. And it happens on one extreme and the other. Romans 12.1 presents evidence that the body is a good thing. He says, present your bodies what? A living sacrifice. I mean, God wouldn't want something perverted or sinful offered to him. He says, present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable unto God. See, nothing's wrong with your physical body. God wants you to use it for his glory. And within the confines of marriage, there's nothing wrong with the physical act of of sexual relationships. As a matter of fact, Hebrews chapter 13, verse 2 says, Marriage is honorable and the bed is undefiled. On the other hand, when you pervert it and you twist it, and you make it something that it's not, that's what was going on in the Corinthian church. There was immorality where Satan had been allowed to move in and pervert the church to the point where there was actually incestual relationships going on, a son and his stepmother. And so Paul's writing that and saying, what are you going to do about this? Uh, Here you have a church who's representing the Lord Jesus Christ in that very immoral society, and yet the immorality is creeping into the church. We have to be reminded that the Lord Jesus Christ wants his church to be without blemish, without spot. He wants his church to be pure. He wants his church to be blameless. Now, we are that in our standing before God, in our position before God, but he even wants it practically. He wants our lives to be lives that are holy. He 
wants our lives to be lives that are representative of the life of his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. He wants a holy people onto himself, a people that is willing to separate themselves, to sanctify themselves away from the world. So he wants to know, what are you going to do, Corinthians, about this problem? And he gives them some guidelines here. Now last week we looked at the problem which required church discipline, the notorious of the sin, everybody knew about it, that was the problem. And the nature of the sin, this was apparently a son's stepmother that he had begun a relationship with, causing probably the divorce between the mother and the father. And we don't know if all of them, the whole family, was still in this church or not. But what we do know is the man was, and no one was doing anything about it. And he was claiming to be a believer. And it wasn't adultery, so this couple, the the son and the stepmother, weren't even married. But they were having immoral relationships. Because if it was adultery, he would have named the name of adultery as a sin. But he didn't. He called it immorality. And you wonder why there was no discipline of the woman, the stepmother. Maybe she wasn't a Christian. Whereas the other man was. So they refused church discipline, and we saw that pride caused that. They had a lack of humility, a lack of sorrow, a lack of discipline. And we said that a church that does not mourn over sin, especially sin within its own fellowship, is on the edge of spiritual disaster. So we see the problem, the pride, and then last week we looked also at the procedure for church discipline, and we're going to delve in a little more to that. And then we saw the purpose. What was the, the reason for this? and the the principles which demand church discipline. So church discipline, what is it? The painful act of church discipline. We left that, left off uh, last week there. He says in verse 5, I've decided to deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of his flesh, that his spirit might be saved in the day of our Lord. So we deal here, first of all, with the authority of, of church discipline. If you turn over to Matthew chapter 18, just quickly, we're just going to kind of go through this. We've been through this before, but Matthew 18. This is the the chapter that deals with church discipline. Now, first of all, understand that this is not man's idea. The Corinthian church wasn't, didn't have this immorality going on, and then they said, well, how are we going to deal with this? Well, let's come up with this plan. Here's what we'll do. No, this is, is God's plan. This is God's idea. Uh, and that's what Paul basically said back in first, verse 3, back in, in Corinthians, just stay in, in Matthew, but in Corinthians he says, for basically even though I'm absent in the body but present in the spirit, I've already judged him. I have the authority to do that. Even though I'm absent, I'm going to do it as if I was present. Now, he obviously was aware of the Gospels. He was aware of the steps that the Lord had laid out. And he was aware. This wasn't something Paul came up with. This was something the Lord gave us, church discipline. It didn't come from man. It came from God. It didn't come as a result of somebody having an issue and, okay, well, let's, how, do, how do we deal with this? No, this was a precursor. 
If you have any problems within the church, here's how you deal with it. Well, let's look at this verse, these verses in Matthew chapter 18, verses 15 to 17. Paul would have known this. There's basically four steps here to church, to church discipline. I don't think they're in your outline, but you can just write them down. Step one, verse 15. He says here, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you've what? You've gained your brother, it says. So what's the first step in church discipline? The first step in church discipline is go to your brother or sister in Christ. See, sometimes people will come to Ken or come to I and say, oh, you know, what are you going to do about this? This person is doing this. I have no knowledge of that. I haven't seen that. Why are you talking to me about it? The Bible clearly says, as a brother or sister in Christ, if you see something awry in somebody's life within the church, another brother or sister in Christ, and it's sinful behavior, the Bible clearly says that you are to go to them personally. You're not to even come and tell me about it. I mean, that's how clear it is here. Go to your brother, he says. He says, don't check with the pastor first. He says, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault. You do that in love. You do that in grace. You do that with mercy. But there's confrontation there. And the goal is restoration. The goal is, you know what, that the body polices itself. I mean, I think sometimes people think that the elders or the pastor of the church or the, the spiritual Gestapo of the church. Well, what, we got to go tell the pastor, you know, brother so-and-so, we saw him, or sister so-and-so. Why are you here talking to me about this? Have you gone to them? Well, well no, I, I figure that's your job. Well, no, it's not. That's not my job. That's not Ken's job. Now, if we see something in someone else's life brother or sister in Christ, that's sinful, then it's contingent upon us to go to them personally, just like it would be for you. See, you can't deal with something of that nature when you're, it's it's hearsay. That's all it is. And sometimes, you know, that's the counsel. If you just want counsel to come and say, hey, someone offended me, you know, I, I don't know what to do, what should I do? The counsel that you're going to receive is you need to go talk to that person. And so, you know, sometimes we need to revisit the one another's in Scripture. How we should treat one another within the body of Christ. Because it all starts in the pew. It doesn't start in the pulpit. It starts in the pew. It's contingent upon the congregation to keep a spiritual eye on each other. See, if we're, if we're sensitive to sin in our own lives, and we're living obedient to Christ, and we're attached to Christ, and we're living in his word, then you know what? We're going to become sensitive to sin if we see it in someone else's life. It's going to bother you. And when it bothers you, that's when you go and you speak to that person. That's how it should work. See, there's, there's so many times we think of church discipline as someone standing in front of the church and the church voting and kicking them out the doors. That's not the nature of church discipline. The goal of church discipline is always restoration, always. That's the goal. And it starts when that offense is seen or that offense is taken from someone else, you go to your brother or your sister. 
It doesn't go to the church. It doesn't go to the pastor. It doesn't even go to the elders. You go to him, it says. Well, I don't want to deal with it. I want you as elders to do it. Well, we're not going to deal with it. It's not our problem. We didn't see it. We have no knowledge of it. Secondly, it says in verse 16, so if he listens to you, what a glorious thing. You've gained your brother. And nobody else even has to know about it. See, that, that's, that's, the, 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 that's where the recipe for church discipline begins. You see something awry in somebody's life, and you go, and you say, hey, you know what? You said this, and it's kind of bugging me, and I, you know, I just, or you did this, or I saw you do this, or boy, whatever it was. And you go to them in love, and, and, and that, that brother or sister, you know what? You're right. I was having a bad day. I shouldn't have done that. I'm sorry. Will you forgive me? And it's, it's over. Done. It's easy. And notice it says you go to him. You don't text them. You don't write an email. You don't even make a phone call. It says you go to him. I know that's hard. It's difficult. But that's what the Bible tells us to do. And if we were just focused on what the Bible tells us to do, and if we're willing to do it, then it will preserve the purity and the holiness and the sanctity of Christ's church. And that should be our goal, right? That should be, as members of a church, we want it to be a holy and and set-apart church. We don't want to have issues floating around. Well, what's the second step? Verse 16. He says, but if he does not listen to you, so he doesn't listen. He says, no, I'm not going to, I don't agree with you, no. Take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of one or of two or three witnesses. Now, this is important because basically when you go to someone and you confront them about their sin and they just kind of put the hand up and say, yeah, get out of here. I'm not going to listen to that. Yeah, I did it. I don't care. Unrepentant. They're not willing to acknowledge it. They're not willing to whatever. Then it says, very simply, you take one or two other with you. So that by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every fact may be confirmed. That kind of makes sense, doesn't it? You don't want to be out there hung out all by yourself. So it's not only dealing with the fact of his sins, but the fact of how it's dealt with. You have witnesses there watching to see that you're doing it in the name of Christ. It's done in the power of Christ. It's not a vendetta. It's not vindictiveness. There's no axe to grind or anything like that. You're, you're truly seeking to help this person. And so you take one or two people with you and say, hey, you know what, I talked to you last week and you didn't seem real receptive. So I brought Charlie and Joe along with me. I just want to lay this out for you again very clearly, lovingly. Well, step three, if he refuses to listen to them, so they're on board at that point, They know what's going on, and they tell them the same thing you've been telling them. Then it says, tell it to the church. Tell it to the church. This is when the church begins to become more and more aware and goes into prayer for this one who is in sin. That's the goal. That's that's the point. That's why you're telling the church. Church discipline is not just to get rid of somebody. It's to confront someone and hold them accountable 
for what they're doing. And so at that point, you go to the church and you say, look, brother so-and-so is in grievous sin. I've gone to him. I took Charlie and Joe with us, and he's still not responding, so we want to tell the church to pray for this. Pray for this individual. Reach out to him. Confront him about it. And then it says, finally, step four. It says, tell it to the church. If he refuses to listen even to the church, then let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. A Gentile and a tax collector. Remember, Paul said, such a one turn over to Satan for the destruction of his flesh. We talked about this last week a little bit. That's what he's talking about there. He's saying, you know what? If, if they're saying, naming the name of Christ and they want to be part of the church, but their life is antithetical to living the Christian life, they're doing something that's immoral or, or, or something that, that dishonors Christ and they're not willing to deal with it, then you know what? You treat them as an unbeliever. You say, hey, there's the door. You're not welcome here. And notice, this is important because some people get hung up on this. It says, if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you, not to the church, but to you, as a Gentile and a tax collector. You know, sometimes I have people ask me, hey, I got this brother or this sister in Christ, and, you know, they're, they're living in our house. And, you know, they have their friend come over, and they spend the night, and say, I don't feel comfortable with it. It's the same situation. It's the same thing. You do the same thing. You go and you confront, hey, you know, there's no, not going to be any hanky-panky here going on in my house. You, you're free to stay here, but I don't want this going on. If they're, if they're unwilling to listen, what do you do? You put them out. If you don't put them out, what are you doing? You're giving license to what they're doing. And that's a difficult decision sometimes because sometimes that's a son or a daughter we're talking about who's naming the name of Christ. We're not dealing with unbelievers. We're dealing with Christians here. And so if they refuse to listen even to the church, you treat them as a Gentile, as a tax collector. You remove them as if he doesn't even know the Lord. That's God's plan. Now, you notice down here a little further, verse 18, it says, Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. This is not talking about word of faith, binding and loosing. It's going along with the context. In other words, you're not just making these decisions on your own. This is something that God is laying out for you. And then you notice there, verse 19, And again I say to you, if two or three, two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by the Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. What is Matthew saying here? He's not saying Okay, if you have a prayer meeting, you can't really have a prayer meeting with just one person because the Lord isn't there. Have you ever heard that? I've, heard, I've been in prayer meetings where people start off the prayer meeting, you know, the Bible says where two or three are gathered in his name, there I am in the midst. And they're ripping this verse out of its context. It's not talking about a prayer meeting. It's talking about church discipline. It's talking about having that accountability. 
And so you can't tolerate sin in your own life or in my life. We can't do that. But we also shouldn't tolerate sin in other people's lives when we know about it. And they're a brother or sister in Christ. That's God's plan. Sin is a reproach to God. And it's his church is to walk in holiness before him. You know, if you allow, if you tolerate sin within the body of Christ, or even in your own life, if you tolerate it and you allow it to fester and don't do anything about it, what are you doing? You're, you're, you're killing your testimony. If a church allows sin to fester within the ranks of the church, what does it do? It kills the testimony of that church. I mean, two things happen when sin is not dealt with within the church. First of all, the testimony of believers is damaged outside the church. And then secondly, the purity of the believers is affected inside the church because you're allowing something inside that shouldn't be there. So we need to be reminded of this. And so you see the authority of church discipline comes from the Lord himself, Matthew 18. Well, you also see the action here. We're not going to spend a lot of time here because we went over this last week, but to deliver such a one over to Satan for the destruction of his flesh. In other words, we talked about how God can even use Satan. He used it in the life of Job. He can use it in the life of his believers sovereignly to allow Satan to, to affect someone in a way that hopefully the the pain and the suffering that's caused gets so bad that they return to, return to Christ, they return to God. They repent of their sin. This isn't saying that sin is ca- or sickness is caused by sin. That's not what it's saying. But it is saying that sometimes you might have a believer who is unwilling to repent of known sin in their life. God is perfectly capable of saying, hey, you know what? I've got to teach you a lesson. And this is going to hurt me as much as it's going to hurt you. But you know what? You've got to learn your lesson. And the goal, once again, is restoration. That's what the goal is. And so here, he says very clearly, in, back in verse 6 there, of 1 Corinthians 5, or verse 4, he says, hey, you know what? If you, if you turn this man over to Satan for the destruction of his flesh... It's okay because if he's truly a Christian and even though he goes out in the world and he lives steeped in sin and it causes his death, which happened frequently throughout the Bible, there was individuals who were literally killed. They were struck dead by God because of their sinful behavior. I mean, we don't, think, well, that doesn't happen today. Well, we don't know, to be honest with you. There's been situations where I've scratched my head and said, wow, that person died? That was quick. What was going on? We don't know, but the point here is that God is willing to do whatever it takes to protect the purity of his church. If that means taking one of his own children, throwing them out into the world, and saying, Satan, have your way with them. If that means his death, this also speaks to our security. Because he says, even though your, your flesh is destroyed, what? 
the Spirit may be saved. See, this is a lesson here for us, too, as believers. Because I think, frankly, sometimes we get kind of haughty, we get kind of prideful in our own lives. And we see a brother or sister struggling in a certain area, and yeah, maybe we try to reach out and, and whatever, try to help them. But then it's almost like, I've had it, this happen to me personally, and the callousness sets in. And it's like, you just forget about that person. You know, they're probably not a Christian anyway. And you, that's not what the Bible calls us to do as the body of Christ. We're to grieve over that person's sin. We're to pray for them. We're to intercede for them. And if it comes to the point where we put them out, then you know what? That doesn't mean you stop praying for them. That doesn't mean if you see them in the grocery store, you, oh, get away from me, Satan. You, know, you don't do that. Because they may still be part of the body of Christ. They're just not living like it. So we have to have compassion. We have to be gracious. Doesn't mean we compromise. Doesn't mean we even fellowship with such a person. Because the Bible says don't even, don't even do that. Because you're trying to teach them a lesson. You're trying to teach them what you had in the church. You can't have it anymore because you're unwilling to sever yourself from the sin that has filled your life. You're unwilling to turn from your sin back to the Savior. Therefore, we, we have no, no choice in the matter. We have to put you out of the church. And verse 6 speaks of their attitude. He says, your boasting is not good. They were boasting through this whole process. I think sometimes, you know, we have to, we have to be careful about that. And, you know, First John does speak of a sin that leads on to death. So we have to be, be aware of that. Um, but at the same time, we shouldn't be prideful when we're going through this process. Uh, it's a painful thing to go through the process of church discipline. It's usually not quick. It usually takes a long period of time because you want to allow God's grace to work in that individual's life. But you have to have an understanding that this is God's plan, this is God's purpose. Now here, their attitude was, was one of boasting, of pride. And you know, sometimes we need to stop and we need to examine our own hearts. It's very easy to look at yourself very biased, with a very biased opinion, and evaluate yourself with all the, you know, the plus signs. It's funny, I was watching some of the, the individuals who went through this debate recently, and some of them, they were asked, well, how do you think you did? Oh, A+. Plus. <laughs> I mean, it's just filled with themselves, these people. And I get it, you got to be confident in that kind of business and stuff, but still, it's, it's you know, there's a point where you have to be honest with yourself. I mean, there's a lot of Christians around today that think, hey, everything's going great. How's your spiritual? Oh, it's wonderful. It's wonderful. Joyous. Praise the Lord. I don't need to examine myself. There's no sin there. Well, when you stop and you bow your knee and you put your nose in the Scripture, you're going to find some sin in your life because that's what it does. It points out the sin in your life. The Holy Spirit points out the sin in our lives. You know, you don't want to end up 
like the church of Laodicea in Revelation 3.17, where it says, You say, I am rich, I am increased with goods, I have need of nothing. John says, you don't know that you're wretched, that you're miserable, that you're poor, you're blind, and you're naked. There are people within the church today, beloved, that think everything is just fine and dandy. But their spiritual life is a wreck. Because they're not willing to look at their lives honestly and objectively in light of God's word. So the attitude here is is pretty clear. He says, don't be prideful about this. Don't be arrogant. And then just quickly here, he says, I read this last week, but do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? A little leaven leavens the whole lump. What's he talking about here? He's going all the way back in the Old Testament when they were held captive in Egypt. And we don't have time to get into it completely today, but leaven, basically, they would, this is a starter for bread, and so they would, when they would make their bread, they would take a little piece off and they'd set it aside. So when they wanted to make bread again, they had some leaven there to make it. And so when they left Egypt, God gave them very strict commands in the Old Testament. You don't, don't take anything with you. Absolutely nothing. Because he didn't want anything from that life, that bondage, that time in Egypt to be carried over into their new life. And it's the same thing as a Christian. That's really what this has to do with. He's saying, look at your old life. I'm sure you did a lot of things, but don't bring that into your new life. Because that's what they were doing. A lot of these Corinthians were bringing the philosophy and the vain wisdom of of the world into the church. And it was polluting the church to the point where it resulted in sexual immorality amongst their, their own people. And nobody was saying anything. Nobody was addressing it. See, the church is to break any, anything that has to do before you became a Christian. That should be your old life. And we're not called to, to bring that over into our new life. Uh, don't have anything in your new life that you had in your old life. Of a derogatory sense is what he's saying. The Bible says, if any man be in Christ, he's a what? New creature. Old things are what? Passed away. Behold, all things have become new. That's the picture. And so he's saying to these Corinthians, I know what your life was before. You lived in Corinth. I mean, that's, you know, to, to, to Corinthianize basically meant to have fornication. It was one and the same. It was such a perverted city. So he said, I know what you were like before you came to Christ. He says, I know all the stuff you did. I know how you lived in pagan immorality. And in your new life, now that you're a Christian, you have no business dragging this stuff over. Not even a little bit. Not even a little chunk of leaven can come over. That's the point. And so he says here in verse 7, clean out the old leaven that you may be a new lump. (laughs) Not lumpy, but a new lump of leaven. You have a new life in Christ. As you really are, look at what he says, unleavened. 
In other words, if you are truly in Christ, you know what? Leaven is kind of a picture of sin. You are pure positionally before God. And so he says, basically live like it. And then he talks about the Passover. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Remember back in Exodus chapter 12, this is when they, he gave them this feast, the feast of the unleavened bread. For seven days, there, where they were in Egypt, they, 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 they said, you know what, we, we're not going to have anything to do with this, this leaven. It's a feast of unleavened bread. And the, the Israelites were basically part of the Egyptian life because they'd been there for a while. And God said, no, this shouldn't be. You're God's people. You don't have any right fraternizing or being part of this, this pagan society. And so the final act of separation on the Passover, they put blood on the doorposts of the lentil, on the lentil there, and the, the angel of the death the angel of death passed by. You remember what happened. And the angel of death slaughtered the firstborn throughout Egypt. If they didn't have the blood on the doorpost, the firstborn was killed. And God had made a separation. And finally, Pharaoh said what? That's it. Get these people out of here. And that's what signified that. Now, the sacrifice of the lamb symbolized the separation of Egypt or of Israel from Egypt. And the sacrifice of Christ is a what? It's an imagery, it's a separation of the believer from the world. Just as the Passover lamb was the symbol of separation for Israel, leaving that old life in Egypt, Christ, our Passover, who died on the cross, severed our connection with the world. And he freed us to go to the promised land. Freed us to go to heaven. And so that's the imagery there that he uses. And he said, you know what? We're going to celebrate this festival, but not with the old leaven. You're going to live your Christian life, but don't have all this old stuff that was in there before you came to Christ, part of it, and think it's okay because it's not, because we need to do things with sincerity and truth. Now, verse 9, he talks about this particular focus of church discipline. Verse 9, he says, I wrote to you in my letter. He wrote to them a letter previously. It's not recorded in Scripture, so it's not in the canon. It wasn't inspired, but he wrote to them. And Paul heard about this sexual immorality in the church, and so he wrote him a letter, penned him a little note, and said, hey, knock it off. Don't have anything to do with these people the people who are within the church who are acting in an immoral fashion. That's who he was talking about. And so he has to clarify here because, you know, we don't know where this letter is. That's why I just put down there the lost letter. <laughs> we don't have it in Scripture. But the second point there is they had a lack of understanding. They misunderstood what Paul was saying. Churches do this all the time. You know, come out and be ye separate from among them. and They use all these verses... To basically say we are to have absolutely nothing, no contact with the world. Well, that's impossible. 
Because how could you be salt and light in the world if you're not going to have contact? How are you going to be able to evangelize if you're not going to have contact? The key is, when you're having contact, don't allow the contact to pervert who you are as a believer. You have to keep in mind, the Bible says, bad company, what? Corrupts good morals. So you may be a deacon, you may be an elder, you may be a pastor. But the Bible has a principle that says, you know what? If you hang around with people that are in the world and that are not part of the body of Christ, if you hang around them long enough, guess what? You're not going to influence them, they're going to influence you. That's the biblical principle. I used to see it all the time as a youth pastor. Usually the girls would come to me and they'd say, oh, you know, could you pray? You know, I started dating this guy. And, and, and my first question, okay, he's not in the youth group, so is he, is he a believer? Well, I think so. I don't know. You know, he goes to this church. and uh, That church isn't really solid. You know, it's, not, it's, it's more of a cult than it is a church. Well, I, I just want to witness to him. I, just, I think God wants me to witness to him. And okay, the whole witnessing, dating kind of deal. And inevitably, when they continue down that road, what happens? They're sitting in my office. I'm pregnant or we messed up or whatever. See, don't misjudge your ability. Don't overestimate your ability to save everybody. To go out there and to, you know, I go to the bars so I can relate to these people and I can. Bad choice. Bad choice. Well, I don't drink it. Just it's not not good. And it's 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 bad in so many different ways. I mean, you may go to a bar and drink water. But if I see you coming out of the bar, do I know that you were in there just drinking water? No. If I see you coming out of a place that's questionable, <laughs> nightclub, whatever. I, I'm going to draw an assumption. Now, the right thing for me to do is to come and confront you about it. Say, hey, I saw you coming out of this place. That's not a place a Christian should be. So you, you have to be careful. I remember I was down here at the coffee shop one day, just sitting there having my coffee, and I was listening to this youth pastor talk to this intern. And he was explaining to them, that, you know, on the weekends, you know, we can go out and do some things. And, you know, if you want to go out to the clubs and everything, just don't do it in Redwood City. You know, we go to Palo Alto. We go to Menlo Park because, you know, the kids might see us. I'm thinking, I'm sitting there going, what in the world are you telling this guy? It's okay to go do those things as long as it's out of eyesight of those you're ministering to. That's not right. And that's kind of what they, they had concluded here. They said, you know what? Paul says... I'm writing to you, verse 11, not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he's guilty of sexual immorality. So they took it, oh, the world, the outside, you know, stay away from them. It's okay if it's in here. I mean, see how warped it is? And he has to re-clarify that. And he says, you know what, if he's guilty of sexual immorality, not only that, but greed, idolatry, reviler, drunkard, swindler. Not even to eat with such a one. Remember the steps. You go to them. They don't listen, you take one or two with them. They don't listen, you tell it to the church. 
If they still don't listen, you put them out. You don't invite them over for dinner. You don't fellowship with them. I know that's hard, but that's what the Bible says. And that's what Paul is doubling down here. Because what they were doing is, you know, oh yeah, you know, uh, this, this, this couple's kind of interested in me coming to our church and they're living together and, you know, we don't want to chase them away. So, well, are they naming the name of Christ? Now remember, we're talking about believers. We're not talking about unbelievers. We're talking about believers who are saying, yes, I'm a Christian, but I'm living with my girlfriend and she's a Christian too. And they're coming to your house on Thursday nights for Bible study. And you become aware of that. What should you do? You talk to them and say, look, you're living in sin. This is wrong. You shouldn't be doing this. Yeah, well, to each his own. Okay, you grab Charlie and Joe and you go and you talk to them again. They give you the nose up, then you you tell it to the Bible study. You say, hey, you know what? This couple is living in sin. We need to pray for them that they would repent. They don't listen. Guess what? Next time they show up, oh, we're here for Bible study. Sorry, you're not welcome. You're not welcome. See, you can't. That's not a. That's not an evangelism technique. That's that's not trying to be gracious to them. You're really enabling that behavior when you allow it to happen within the confines of any relationship. And then he says here in verse twelve, he basically shows us. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? This should speak to us practically. This is very practical. How many times have we judged non-Christians for their behavior? I know I have. Oh, look at that person. Oh, how disgusting. (laughs) Rather than looking at them not not as necessarily sinners, even though they are, not as the enemy, but as victims of the enemy. We have to remind ourselves of that. These people are lost. They don't have Christ. They don't have the spiritual insights we do. They don't have the Holy Spirit. They don't even have an understanding of God's word. And so when you find out someone is living in homosexuality or living with their girlfriend or whatever, and they're not a believer, that's not what this is talking about. It's talking about believers here. I've actually heard of churches that practice church discipline on non-believers. What is that about? Remember, I was on the radio one time, and somebody said, well, what would happen if, a, if, if someone of a, a homosexual bent came to your church? I said, what do you mean, what would happen? Hopefully they'd get saved, and they'd repent, and they'd come to Christ. But what if they didn't? I said, well, they wanted to sit there and listen to the message every week. God bless them. I don't have an issue with that. If they're not a Christian, if they name the name of Christ and they're saying, oh, and I'm also a homosexual, then we got a problem. But see, we can't hold the standard of holiness to unbelievers. What can we do? We can present the gospel to them. We can show them Christ. And that's what he's saying here. What do I have to do with judging outsiders? It is not those, is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge. And remember, he's not talking to the pastors. He's not talking to the elders. Who's he talking about? He's talking to the congregation. And see, we've bought into the lie of, you know, well, judge not. 
So when we see a brother or sister in sin, oh, I'm not going to say anything because I know there's things in my life. Well, then get the things straightened out in your life and go talk to them about their sin. See, it, it becomes wrong. It becomes sinful. The Bible says that when you have an issue and you're not addressing your issue, but you're pointing out the issue in somebody else's life, you know, you got to two by four hanging out of your eye and you're trying to pick a splinter out of somebody else's. That's not going to work too well. And that's what Jesus talks about. And so we need to be reminded when it comes to church discipline, it's for the purpose of restoration. And yes, we are called to judge within the church. We are called to hold each other accountable within the church. And when a church doesn't do that, it's not being transparent, it's not being authentic, it's not being Christ-like. That doesn't mean you go around like some investigator, oh, let me see what's in their life. You know, no. But when sin becomes known to you as a brother or sister in Christ, you are to address it personally. You go and you talk with that person. And if they don't listen, then you follow Matthew 18. Verse 13, God judges the outside. God judges those outside. You don't have to worry about the people out there. We don't have to worry about it. That's not our concern. And yet, when you stop and think about it, that's exactly what a lot of modern day churches have done. They've, They've taken the body of Christ and they said, you know what, you're really not our concern on Sunday mornings We're more concerned with those people out there. So we're going to change our whole format so when we invite the people from the world into our church, they will feel comfortable and they'll be entertained. And hopefully if they come enough, eventually maybe they'll repent and come to Christ. But our priority is not the church on Sunday morning. Our priority is the world. And so everything gets miscombobulated. (laughs) So you go to churches where they have, you know, a concert and it's just crazy. It's like, what are they trying to do? They're trying to entertain people. Why? So that they'll come back. I mean, their intentions are well. I, I, I think it's, it's just a flawed way of doing it. It's not a biblical way. And that has been going on for years. I mean, the whole, the whole way Rick Warren started his church was he took a, a community survey before he even had a church down in Orange County. He went around door to door, thousands of homes, and ask them, why do they go to church? If they said yes, he wouldn't talk to them anymore. He'd just leave. If they said no, he said, why not? And they would, he would tell them, well, you know, churches talk about money. Uh, churches are this, churches are that. Based on his information, he went and he started Saddleback Church. On what people want. So from the very beginning, he said, we're a church that's going to give you what you want. Not what you need, but what you want. And see, that's a flawed way. I'm not saying God didn't use that ministry, but I'm just saying it's a flawed way of, of, of ministering to people. Because we're not here to give you what you want. We're here to give you what you need. We all need the word of God. And so he says, God's going to take care of the outside world. Don't worry about that. But he says this at the end, purge the evil person from among you. So it's not to be tolerated. Not just immorality, but sin on any level is not to be tolerated within the walls of the church. 
within the body of Christ. When we know about it, we're to go to those individuals personally and deal with it. We're not to go to the pastor or the elders and say, oh, did you hear what so-and-so did? I saw him dead. No. That's, that's actually sinful to do that because you're violating the principle of Matthew 18. It's better to go and talk to that person one-on-one. And then the last thing here quickly, the premise of church discipline, it does not involve judging a person's motives. So many times I hear people saying, well, you know, this person, how do you know that? Well, I just have a feeling. I'm not really concerned about your feelings. You can't judge a person's motives. It has to involve a decision based on known facts. I saw so-and-so doing this, and I know chapter, verse, it's sin. That's why it's important to go to them. Because a lot of times when you go to them and you see them eye to eye and you talk about it, most matters are just dissolved. Oh, I see. Oh, I thought, I thought this was what was going on. Or I thought you said this. No, no. And it, it's all working out. It does not involve judging non-believers. We already said that. God will judge them. It is the church's responsibility to judge believers in the church. It is a judgment of those who will not repent. If you do that, if you're faithful in carrying out the principle that Paul has laid down here, that Jesus has laid down, then you know what? Then you have a church that, first of all, is protected from those who want to come in and infiltrate and bring leaven into the purity of Christ's church. They realize, oh, okay. This is a smaller church. There's accountability here. Uh, some people don't like that. They'd much rather go to a church of several thousand people where they can sit in a pew and nobody asks them if they were there last week or notices whether they were or not. But they're just checking the box. They're coming to church. You have to be careful with that. And so I thank God that we're a church that's willing to stand on the principles of Scripture, to do it in a loving and gracious way, And you know what? Don't ever go down that road of arrogance as the Corinthians did because that's really bad as a brother or sister in Christ when you you start to have a a self-righteous attitude toward those who, who may have fallen into sin or something like that. The Bible clearly says, except by the grace of God, what? There go I. So all these things need to be dealt with graciously, with humble spirit, and understanding that, that, that God can restore th- these situations. But it has to be done in his way. Father, we thank you for your word. Thank you for this time, Lord. We, I pray that it's practical to us. Lord, not that we're called to be the, the church's police, but as we interact with each other and fellowship and grow together as the body of Christ, inevitably there's going to be issues that arise. Offenses or sinfulness, Uh, behavior that is is found out. And Lord, I pray that it will be dealt with in a biblical, scriptural way with a compassionate and loving spirit, uh, really pushing forth the grace of Christ, the love of Christ, the forgiveness of Christ, so that we can win that brother or sister back. And Father, we thank you. We pray if there's anyone here this morning who's yet to put their faith, their trust in Christ, maybe you've never repented of your sin, you've never turned from your sin 
you've never come to Christ and said, Lord, I, I need a Savior. I need you to forgive me of my sin. That's, a, that's something you can do right now in the quietness of the moment and just cry out to the Lord, Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. Show me the error of my ways. Help me even in my unbelief. Forgive my sin, I ask you. That would be a prayer that God will, will answer when it's prayed from a sincere heart. So, Father, we pray for our time across the way that you would just bless our time of fellowship, bless our, our food to our bodies, and uh, we just thank you for your goodness and your grace to us. We, we ask all these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen.